Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning again. It is a Friday, the 12th of November. And so I feel like because it's Friday, I should give you the Friday Farm Report. Um, yes, there were cracked eggs that came in from the hen house yesterday. Uh, I talked about that in the opening of the first hour in our conversation with John Seidel. So if you missed that, uh, let me encourage you to check it out later today. It'll be streaming at MyFaithRadio.com and on the Faith Radio app. We'll be streaming on the Faith Radio app. I don't know. You can get it on demand. I think that's the way I'm supposed to be talking about it. You can listen to it on demand at both MyFaithRadio.com and via the Faith Radio app a little bit later today if you missed it. All right. So um, on the Friday Farm Report, in addition to, you know, it being Veterans Day, so I spent a little time walking and thanking God. Um, was walking in the Veterans Cemetery, which is at the exit on the interstate where I live beautiful. Um, it's a beautiful space. It's a solemn place. Um, and so just uh, appreciated that opportunity. Also spent a little time yesterday afternoon with a an old Marine named Walt. So thank you, Walt, for your service to our country and everyone um, like Walt who has put on the uniform of the United States of America in various forms over many years. Um, just acts of appreciation. On my way over to Walt's, I, uh, I called our friend, retired Lieutenant General uh, John Brandon, and uh, just thanked him for his service. And he was surprised and delighted to hear from us. And I asked him to be sure and be prepared to join us again to fill us in. And he says, yes, I think I'm on the verge of having some very good news. So let's be praying for the situation in Afghanistan, the work of guys like John Brandon, who are still um, seeking the liberation of uh, of our friends who are in country there. Uh, yes, I sang happy birthday to my stepdad, Ron. I did so on his voicemail because he was out and about up to something. I don't know. Now, in addition to all of that, um, there was some cookie baking because tomorrow there's a big fundraiser for the um, life skills, the special needs um, classes in our in our community. Um, and so they needed some homemade cookies that they can turn around and sell. Now, my husband and I joke about this all the time because I definitely spent more time and more money on uh, gathering the uh, cookie baking um, supplies, following recipes, which is just not my gifting, um, decorating them, putting them in cute little gifty trays that I slid into little cellophane gifty bags and tied with ribbons. And I'm telling you, the time invested in these cookies. And, you know, they're probably going to sell them for like a I don't know, a dollar a dozen. I mean, you know, right? I mean, who knows? Because you know these events. None of us like to pay very much for food at fairs, kind of fair kind of things. So anyway, there you go. I spent a a huge amount of time, energy, and resources producing cookies that uh, I am fairly certain will be sold for less than their market value. But, you know, if you knew that I baked them, my guess is you would invest uh, heavily. So 
I think the ones that turned out best, I made some ginger snaps, which I love. It's kind of my favorite cookie. I also made some traditional chocolate chip cookies, although they're sort of traditional because I put oatmeal in mine. Um, and then I made these ones that I feel like are like the super Christmasiest. That's not a word. It's a very Christmassy cookie in my mind. And it's a really rich chocolate cookie that has peppermint um, oil in it. So it's a peppermint chocolate cookie. And then while it's still warm but not hot, so this is sort of the strategic part of this process, you unwrap these little... Um, it, Hershey's Kisses makes them, but it's shaped like a little bell. And it is got a little chocolate, dark chocolate base, but it has the the part of the bell that you think of as like a bell curve, part of the bell, is white chocolate with little peppermint pieces in it. So I don't really know what they're called, but that's what I use to put on the top of the peppermint, the dark chocolate peppermint cookie. And now you're hungry, and so am I. All right, that's the farm report from here. Oh, yes, and I made them all with the cracked eggs that were gathered from the hen house yesterday. All right, that's what I got. Um, Adam Holtz is joining us next. Oh, one of the things that I did last week was see Dune. And so um, I'm going to talk with Adam about, wow, there are so many messianic and theological thread lines in the movie Dune, which, of course, he told me they were there. And so I was prepared to pull them. That's up next. You're on Mornings with Carmen. Joining us now, you can find him at Focus on the Families PluggedIn.com. Adam, the most important question of the day Do you have a favorite Christmas cookie? And if so, what is it? Well, I don't know what they're called, but I think you pretty much talked about them. The, the uh, peanut butter cookies with the Hershey's Kiss on top. Holy cow. Okay. So, okay. So, be- so, when you were, you were talking about yours, so I'm like, oh. I'm going to fly to your house and get some right now. That's what I wanted to do. <laughs> So because so because, you know, of all the the challenges that people have with um, with uh, allergies. So I was like that. I didn't I didn't make the 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 peanut butter cookie. I made the one that's the chocolate with the mint because, I don't know, maybe fewer people are allergic to chocolate and mint. But um, yes, the I will definitely say that in our household, not only the peanut butter cookie with the kiss on top, we like. Um, to make it with crunchy peanut butter and with no flour because then it's oh. just pretty much all peanut butter held together by an egg and some friends. I'm telling you, I will. I, will, I know. I'm salivating. We're going to have to have so, a, a cookie cookie baking party. So, Carmen, I, I have to mm-hmm. confess that when you were talking about your farm report, you remember I, yeah. I grew up in a small town in Iowa. So everybody in your listening audience in the you know upper Midwest yeah. will appreciate this. You know, the farm report always meant, you know, what's <laughs> happening with pork bellies. And, I know. And as a kid, there were all these words that I didn't even understand. And I kind of miss that, having moved to Colorado. And the other thing is I strangely miss pesticide commercials, you know, where I learn about, oh. you know, weeds like Jimson weed and Black Nightshade and Cockleburr. There are none of those commercials in Colorado. So when you said farm report, it triggered all of these Iowa memories that were very specific. So uh, I loved hearing what you're doing on your farm, but I thought you were going to tell me about pork bellies and um, you didn't. But maybe next time. Maybe next time. Okay. so I can tell you that if you go to AgWeb, 
com. You can actually get the 2022 fertilizer and pesticide um, input prices report because that's today's uh, farm report over there. There you go. I'm going right I, right I, now, right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I don't even know what a pork belly is, but I totally get I the I, – or, or why you would want to know what its future was. But there you go. Okay. Right? So Adam Holtz and I both appreciate um, farms, farmers, and farming, particularly the produce yes. of the farm – and so thank yes. you to each and every one of you that is out there today Absolutely. in a combine bringing in the sheaves, right? Yep. I know. The people Absolutely. are bringing in the sheaves today, Absolutely. which I am just totally excited about. All right. I went to see Dune last Saturday, and you adequately prepared me for it. So it, let's let's pull a few threads of Dune, and then um, after a brief break, we'll come back and talk about some other reviews. So Dune, yes. where should we start? Well... <clears throat> It's hard to know, and when you read the book, you realize that Frank Herbert, who published the book in 1965, he had a pretty epic vision for storytelling that encompasses culture, economics, religion, warfare. And the thing that's interesting about his religious and spiritual worldview is we sort of get two different things going on. There's this group of uh, they're depicted not in a very sympathetic way. Of they call them, you know, witches uh, derisively, uh, called the Bene Gesserit, and the Bene Gesserit is this group of female, all female uh, priestesses, essentially, who guide the empire and guide the emperor, and it's clear that they have their own plans to stay in control and to maintain their influence, and they have a prophecy of a man that's eventually going to come, but they're so cynical. It's hard to know how much they even believe in their own prophecy. And in some ways, it reminded me of the corruption in the Catholic Church just prior to the to the Reformation. Right. I mean, you've got these guys who are really interwoven with the secular power structure and there's just all kinds of corruption. So that's one depiction. And everybody kind of is distrustful of them, is cynical about them Um and then on this planet of Arrakis, where there's this substance called spice, which is a hallucinogen that the space guilders take to navigate uh, space and time. It's complicated, but I can't say it any more simply than that. There's a group of indigenous people, desert people called the Fremen. And the Fremen have a prophecy of an outworlder who will come and liberate them. Um, and it's a prophecy that we find out has been seeded by the Bene Gesserit, but they're depicted with a kind of, I think, earnestness and purity to their faith. And so we get these two different ideas about religion, one that it's that it's corrupt, that it's self-seeking, and then you get this picture of these true believers, and the main character is this messianic character. His name is Paul Atreides. Later, he'll be renamed Muad'Dib. Uh, and so, and I should say that the desert people have a sort of Islamic vibe to them. They're not Islamic, but it, it certainly, the imagery recalls that. And so you get those themes interwoven in this story of uh, galactic conflict that is, is really, <clears throat> excuse me, pretty epic. I mean, it, there's a lot going on there. But yes, as you noted, uh, certainly we have messianic themes and we have, um, you know, the whole theme of, I think, predestination versus free will. Uh, they may not use those words in the movies, but you get Paul's growing sense of 
you know, he's being drawn into this thing and he's not sure he's really likes that and doesn't know what his choices are always. So what did you think about it? You can riff on anything I just said, because that's a lot. All right. So I will just um, I will add these comments. Um, for those of you who haven't seen it yet, um, it's it's like you feel like you've only seen the beginning of the part of a story and yet it's right. two and a half hours long, which I think is kind right. of stunning. And you're still on the edge of your seat at the very end thinking to yourself, what, what, that's the, what, like that's the this end? can't possibly be the end. Yeah. Yes. So there right. you go. And, so it's definitely have, one of those. I'm already waiting for the next one. Yeah. And they just greenlit the next one, which will be out in October, 2023, you know, COVID permitting these days. You mm-hmm. always have to say COVID COVID permitting. So a couple of observations. Um, uh, We on our way home from the movie were, you know, chatting it up amongst ourselves. The indigenous desert people felt like us, felt to us a little bit like the Israelites roaming around in the wilderness. There's a wilderness people. Yep. The Fremen, um, this, uh, um, there's this life for a life comment. And then Paul becomes a part of them. So he arrives on the scene, but there's this life for a life thing going on, which felt to at least one person in my car like, hey, didn't Moses kill a guy? I mean, like, right. There's just all these I'm just telling you. Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff in terms of um, of identifying events in the film. Um, the uh, oh, I got to take a break. We're so way over time. All right. So we're going to take a very brief break. When we come back, I'm going to riff on two more things about Dune. And then, yes, we are going to talk about Clifford, the big red dog. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Adam, Anne has just texted in the most critical information that you and I may ever here today, apparently pork bellies equals bacon. Oh, that makes sense, uh, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I okay, so let me just tell you, I'm suddenly far more interested in the the future of pork bellies. I'm so, I'm so, <laughs> <laughs> I, I care so much more than I ever cared before about that portion of the farm report. So thank you, Anne. Yes. yes All right, one more, one more quick point on Dune. Um, I, I, I felt like the... Um, the manipulation, the, 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 what are they called? The, the, the witches. Ben, I'm just going to call them the witches. Jesuits. I can't. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Benny Jesuits, these witches, by the way, who just look like witches. Um, they're really seeking to manipulate the future and control the empire by orchestrating the conception, the birth, um, you know, and the bringing forth of a Messiah. I, right. I got the sense that they wanted it to be a female and that Paul's mother has caused a problem by quote unquote choosing to have a boy. Well, anyway. she caused a problem by choosing to have a boy, but it was always going to be a boy. A boy? Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Okay, but well there they you go. Were All right. to, they were trying to engineer a royal line, and if you read the books, I mean, this is one where you can. Okay, get I ordered it if the book. Nobody's the reading the book. It's like but, it's like six thousand pages long. No, nobody's doing right. that. Yeah, yeah we're waiting for the movies. Reading. Yeah, he's better than us. All right, let's uh, let's before we run out of time, let's do a couple of reviews. You guys can find these right. at pluggedin.com. Um, Clifford. Clifford. Clifford is a large red dog, as you might have guessed. Yes, that Clifford, <laughs> the very one who is uh, in books and cartoons. And this one is a hybrid live action CGI mashup. And if you go to our homepage, you will see Clifford 
and his large head exploding from an apartment building. Not exploding, literally, but I mean, he clearly he's emerging. too big for the apartment. Emerging. Thank you. Um, this is a fun movie about Emily Elizabeth, the little girl who adopts Clifford as a puppy. Uh, Clifford is a magical dog, and she talks with a magical man. And she says, how big will he get? And he says, as big as the love in your heart. So mm. it's sort of like the Grinch in reverse, right? Um, and Clifford, being a large red dog, attracts attention. He attracts the attention of a bad company named Life Grow and the bad guy who is at the head of it. And they grow big things and they want to get their greedy mitts on Clifford. And, of course, Emily Elizabeth knows she needs to protect him. Um, and there's also actually a surprising amount of, I'll, I'll say depth in terms of when do we know when to help something the most we have to let it go, which is close to a spoiler warning. Uh, we're not in old yellow territory here, but Emily Elizabeth has to make some pretty mature choices. So I appreciate that. And of course we get some, some bathroom humor. Uh, it's nothing too over the top. It's what you would expect you know, if you have a giant dog, you probably have giant dog bathroom humor jokes. So uh, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. All right. Um, we can we can do one more. Let's talk about um, Home Sweet Home again. Yes, uh, it's actually Home Sweet Home Alone. Oh, uh, Home Sweet <laughs> But again, you know, I for mean, a person who honestly, sat through previews on Saturday, I should have known that. I got that. Home Sweet Home, no, Sweet Home Alone. No, again. but it's actually... It's a great Freudian slip because I'm going to riff on that and say Home Alone again because that's <laughs> – honestly, if you've seen the trailer, you've seen everything you need to see here. This is a a remake, reboot, sequel to the 1991 Macaulay Culkin movie. Once again, we have a little 10-year-old boy named Max through who no fault of his own is left behind when his family goes to Japan. I mean let's just think about how that happens. I don't care how many kids you have. When you go to a foreign country, you don't leave one behind. Um, no, exactly. So through a mix-up, some people think Max has stolen something of theirs, a couple, and they are determined to get it back by breaking into his house while everyone's gone. And uh, Max is determined to uh, repulse the invaders and does so with uh, painful uh, and pratfall-filled shenanigans and uh, hijinks. If ever hijinks ensued... This is that movie. So a couple kind of surprising suggestive notes. At one point, he hops on the computer and says, Internet, show me your worst. Uh, and I'm like, oh, great. That was really, mm. really good. Um, it probably has less content than the original, but Max is meaner. This is a, a movie that has a meaner spirit than the original. So mm. if you need to see Home Alone, just go find the original streaming somewhere and watch it. You don't need to spend time or money on this version. All right. So that is so helpful. Um, all right. I'm going to make an assignment for you. I want okay. you to do a little research on Macy's Believe campaign. Um, yeah. I'm going to want to know about Tiptoe the Flying Reindeer um, because I think that on Thanksgiving Day in the Thanksgiving Day Parade – we are going to meet Tiptoe the Flying Reindeer, and I suspect that everybody is going to want a plush toy. And so, I think, so. Um, I think the power of story and character and letter writing and wish granting are all things that as Christians we should be prepared to, to speak into. So maybe you and I can um, talk about Macy's Believe campaign and then what it really means to believe in, uh, in the spirit of Christmas the next time we talk. 
That sounds great. I would love to do Fantastic. that. Fantastic. All right. That's Adam Holtz. Uh, you can find him at Focus on the Families Plugged In.com. We'll be right back. All right, I just love uh, what they're doing on on Breakpoint. I love that story about Martin Deporas. And I have to tell you, I am thinking a lot about his sister who lives in the country to whom he sent um, so many people and so many animals. All right, uh, next up, we're going to talk with Herbie Newell from Lifeline Children's Services. We're going to talk about the orphan crisis, not only around the world, but here in the United States. 1.5 million children have been orphaned around the world by COVID-19. How is the church caring for them? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Lakato. The story of Alexander began in 1918 in Russia. By early adulthood, he was a disciple of Marx and Lenin. In World War II, he was drafted into the military. He was falsely accused of spying and arrested. Over the next eight years in prison, his faith in the communist regime diminished. The decisive moment came in January 1952 when he received a visit from a Jewish doctor who had recently become a Christian. Alexander Solzhenitsyn soon followed in the steps of the doctor. He described his conversion in the book, The Gulag Archipelago. Who would have ever imagined that deep in a prison built on atheism, a heart would turn to Christ and would touch the world? Well, we're excited to welcome back Herbie Newell. He is joining us in this National Adoption Month. Herbie, as you will remember, is the president of Lifeline Children's Services. It's the largest evangelical Christian adoption agency in America. Herbie, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Oh, thank you so much. What a what a blessing it is to be back, and especially on this important month in the life of the orphan and the foster child and the advocacy of the church for these yeah. vulnerable groups. So let's talk about um, orphans. Let's talk about kids. Um, you know, as you've described in this foster care population as well. Uh, talk about the number of kids worldwide who have been orphaned during the COVID-19 epidemic. Yeah, so, you know, we started off this epidemic and, and UNICEF, who's always, you know, a bit on the lower side, has been telling us for years that there are about 141 million orphan and vulnerable children worldwide. And we've seen that even through the UNICEF and uh, a, a World Health Organization report that uh, it, we believe that we've seen increased numbers of three to five million uh, new orphaned and vulnerable children uh, around the world. And, and that does not, that's not immune to the United States of America. Here in the U.S., we've seen an increase of the number of kids that have come into our foster care system. So certainly we are seeing uh, the COVID-19 pandemic not only exacerbate the problems that we already had with vulnerable children and vulnerable populations as they have become more vulnerable, but we're also seeing more uh, children and more families become vulnerable because of this global impact. And we look around the world, and certainly some of that has happened through mass migration as, you know, as, as, as people got out of urban centers because there was no longer any jobs or work and they've gone back home into rural centers and the, the children have been left behind or lost in the process. And uh, certainly we've seen that here in the United States of America. 
as even hopelessness has risen and uh, children are, are being abused and neglected. And, and even at the very beginning of this COVID-19 pandemic, what we saw is we weren't seeing a lot more children coming into foster care because the number one way we see kids uh, who come into foster care are reported by abuse and neglect from school teachers, school counselors, parole uh, or truancy officers. And so when schools were affectionately shut down, we saw that kids were, were being mistreated at home. And so we certainly have an opportunity right now more than ever that the church needs to lean in and step in and care for the poor and the needy and the vulnerable. So Herbie, the, um, the stories that we hear in the news are just, they're just heartbreaking. They're devastating. We can't imagine um, the circumstance of, you know, let's say a family in Afghanistan. This one was featured on CNN just recently, um, you know, where in order to feed everybody now they um, they've sold their daughter Um we heard yesterday uh, on the news a, a woman migrating, seeking to migrate from Venezuela to the United States of America, um, who said, you know, I have four children and in my country there's no way to feed them. So I left them to come here uh, to to make money to send back to them. The, the ways in which children um, are being put at it, it, it really devastating, terrible risk. Um, is is no fault in it's just no fault of their parents. Like the circumstances of life, um, haven't just orphaned a lot of kids, which is a crisis situation, but made a, a huge population of children very very vulnerable. Absolutely, and you know I know it's hard because a lot of times we want to demonize the parents who have abandoned or neglected their children. When many times these parents uh, are either systems of of also abuse and neglect, I mean, you look even here in the U.S., most of our foster children have parents, biological parents, that also were in the foster care system. And so we believe that over 60% of the kids currently in U.S. foster care have biological parents that were also in U.S. foster care or had some involvement with U.S. foster care. And so it's a systemic cycle. And then globally, as you talk about in Afghanistan or Venezuela, and we certainly see stories like this around the world, you see the desperation of poverty and you see the desperation of, of care. And moms and, and dads are having to make tough decisions that we here living in the United States, where even in the most bleak times, we, we have what we need, not just for today, but usually we have what we need for the rest of the month. Um, we have our needs that are covered for at least this week. We go to the grocery store and we fill up our cupboards and we fill up our refrigerator with enough food to sustain us for a week. In most places around the world, they're not thinking about what am I going to eat tomorrow or next week. And they're thinking about what will I eat today and how will I survive today. And so when you increase that vulnerability with something like a global pandemic and shutdowns and economic slowdowns, the, the pressure is just multiplied and intensified on these families. And you look at the tragedy of Afghanistan and what has happened in Afghanistan, the, the fall of this country back into the Taliban and back into uh, forces that that uh, are terroristic in nature and are are you know sub are subverting the people uh, to their wishes and to their needs. 
you see parents fleeing to try to do desperate things. I mean, even in Afghanistan, we see parents that are trying just to get their kids across the border to get them out. And so I always, you know, think back to that parable or, or really to the story um, in Kings when Solomon is confronted with these two ladies that in the middle of the night, one of their children had passed away and they switched, you know, the, the babies were switched by the woman who lost her child. And King Solomon has this dilemma. He doesn't know whose baby this living baby really is. And so in his wisdom, the word of God says, he says to these women, I'm going to cut this child in half. I'm going to give you each half. Well, ultimately the living mother says, by no means, let her have the child. And Solomon knew that that was the biological mother. That was the mother. And so what we have to see is even when we don't understand the desperate measures that, that families are taking, we have to understand that they are doing what they know is best. They're doing what they think is best to care for the needs of their children. And many times, unfortunately, uh, it leaves kids in a much worse, vulnerable state, um, and, it, and it leaves them in, in truly a predicament. All right. Herbie and I are going to um, transition this conversation uh, in the direction of hope and in the direction of what we as Christians can do in the face of really just overwhelming numbers of orphaned and vulnerable children, both here in the United States and around the world. We're talking with Herbie Newell. He is the president of Lifeline Children's Services, and this is National Adoption Month. We'll be right back. Continuing our conversation with Herbie Newell, you can uh, find him at Lifeline Children's Services. We're talking during this National Adoption Month about the theology of adoption and the very real need for Christian families to be adopting children today. So, Herbie, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the theology of adoption, what adoption bears witness to in terms of grace and uh, God's sufficiency and provision and then let's call people into um, this spirit of adoption during National Adoption Month. Yeah, absolutely. When you you know look through the God's Word and especially the New Testament, you see the beauty of passages like Ephesians chapter one and Galatians chapter three and four, and certainly Romans chapter eight. When over and over. Paul shows us that our salvation is an act of our adoption by God the Father. Um, by, by grace alone, through faith alone, Christ Jesus dies for us, not because of anything we have done, but because of his grace and his sufficiency. And we are no longer now uh, slaves, but we are now sons and heirs of God. And we have experienced the, the never-ending love of God, the, the compassion of, of God the Father. And what I like to say is people that know how to love are people that have received love. And so as believers, we've been called to demonstrate the love that we've received from God the Father. We, we demonstrate it in our acts of gospel-driven justice. We demonstrate it in the way that, that we show compassion and empathy for the hurting and the vulnerable and the lost. And, and we do it in such a way, not just out of pure empathy— uh, and not just out of a social justice mentality, but we do it out of a gospel justice mentality. And what I mean by gospel justice mentality is that we go to show compassion and, and love and help for the vulnerable in order to make the very gospel known that, that, that we've experienced. And I think of it like a child 
that's that's proud of their family, that's proud of their father or proud of their mother or or, you know, uh, even joking around. Think about it like at the school where one child tells another child, well, my daddy can beat your daddy up. There's a pride in knowing that, hey, I'm secure. This is my father and he's taking care of me. Well, in a grander sense, we have the security that God of the universe hasn't just loved us and sustained us, but he's adopted us into his family that as both Romans and Galatians say, we can now cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. There's intimacy in our relationship with God the Father. And that brings in us this response that as believers, we want to go out and extend the kingdom of our Father. We want to go out and, and adopt others into this family, both spiritually, but also now Physically, when we when we see the orphan, when we see the vulnerable child, when we see the vulnerable family, we want to reach out and we want to adopt, we want to foster, or we want to harbor this family in our presence to love them, care for them, and help them. And we do that not because we're trying to earn favor with the Lord or because we're trying to, to prove some type of righteousness or status in our own, but we do this as an overflow of the overwhelming, never-ending love of God for us that is displayed in our own spiritual adoption. So Herbie, we, um, we know as Christians that this is true, that we are adopted into the family of faith through Jesus Christ, that we only become brothers and sisters in this way, um, that adoption is our lived reality uh, as Christians. And yet, um, adoption, domestic adoption, international adoption, intercountry adoption, whatever kind of adoption you want to talk about, um, is on the decline. And I suspect that's because we feel overwhelmed by the commitment of bringing you know, a broken, lonely, hurting, desperate child into our life. But thank God that God did it for us. Like, I, there's just this part of this that, like, I feel like we've disconnected ourselves as Christians from the reality of who we are if we resist adopting real kids into real families today. Yeah, absolutely. And we certainly have seen the the numbers, as you say, dissipate, especially in intercountry adoption. And I, I think a lot of that is exactly what you've said. A, a lot of the kids that we see that are in need of families overseas and in other countries are older children, um, children in sibling groups, or children with uh, a variety of, of, of needs uh, that they have. And I think a lot of times we, we look at that and, and we see our own situation. We see uh, how life has, has grown harder, even for us during a global pandemic and even before a global pandemic. And we start to wonder, do I have the capacity? Do I have the ability to do this? And, you know, I think that's a fair assessment that we need to make because the one thing I wouldn't want any of, uh, of the listeners to, to think is that there is a biblical mandate to adopt or there's a biblical mandate to foster. The biblical mandate from James 1.27, from Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, from Isaiah chapter one verses sixteen and seventeen is that we that we own the 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 issues of the orphan and the vulnerable. In other words, that that we care for them, and that doesn't always mean adoption, but it can mean adoption. But I, but I also ask that we would pray and ask the Lord and lean in in prayer. You know, am I called? Is my family called to adoption and foster care? And then follow through knowing and trusting that the God who calls you to this will equip you for this. And I certainly could tell hundreds of stories 
of families that felt ill-equipped but felt called to care for and to go and adopt both internationally and domestically or to foster and ultimately the, the great ways that the Lord did equip them, did provide for them and give them the exact resources that they needed to bring these children in. And, and certainly have seen children who under such horrible circumstances desperately needed a family who've received a family and are now thriving. And certainly there are issues and hiccups, but they're thriving in this family where they can know a family, but also where they can hear and see and experience the love of God. Yeah, I'm wondering, um, Herbie, as um, as you know all that you know about what's happening here in the United States and around the world and the needs of uh, of orphaned and vulnerable children, you know, I'm I'm just I'm aware that there are dozens of people uh, people groups um, from all over the world in the city where I now live, and I'm wondering if part of the conversation going forward might be resourcing, um, building the capacity of my international neighbors who already live here in adopting into their families or their churches, um, you know, kids from their home countries. Like, I'm just kind of wondering if the cultural barrier would be uh, brought down um, if, you know, if American churches uh, populated mostly by Americans, right, would reach out to our international Christian neighbors who now live in our communities and say, hey, let's talk about orphans in your home country, and let's talk about resourcing you guys to build your capacity um, to adopt them into your families. I mean, does, does that make any sense at all to you? Oh, absolutely. And I think it's it's crucial because certainly cultural differences uh, can be a and at least an initial barrier uh, for intercountry adoption. But I also think that when we look, especially international adoption, that we've got to appreciate the culture and the country that this child was born in. And mm-hmm. uh, a, an expatriate, someone who has is certainly shares the same culture and the same heritage, can certainly share that with a child. But I also think even more than just our global neighbors who are now living here in the United States, I think it's crucial as well as the American church, that we equip the global church to care for orphans and vulnerable children right around them. And oh, one of the the great successes and the things I've seen the Lord do over this pandemic is, you know, through our partners, Lifelines partners in both Costa Rica, Colombia, um, and as well as in India, we've actually seen believers in all three of these countries step up to foster and step up to adopt even during this global pandemic. And one of the, the most beautiful quotes I had or I heard was from uh, a church in Bogota, Colombia, that said, for this time period, while the Americans cannot come to help us with our orphan epidemic, we've got to step up and help our own children. And and what a beautiful what a beautiful thing when we start to see the global church, not just those who are here living in the United States, but even around the world begin to to reach out and live out the call that the Lord placed upon our lives. Because I think what's really important is this is not an American church call. This is a global church call. And so as Americans and as the American church where where we understand this call and, and we certainly have been acting upon this call, it's imperative that we also help our brothers and sisters living here and living around the world to also understand this call and to care for orphans and vulnerable children in their communities. Oh, Herbie, that is all so helpful. Let me invite you to connect with Herbie at lifelinechild.org. 
lifelinechild.org. Um, Herbie, as always, thank you so much for what you're doing every single day to advance the cause of the orphan and other vulnerable children. Thank you for the way in which you're equipping us as Christians to respond um, by faith and in very tangible ways. Uh, we, we appreciate your ministry. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me. Absolutely. We'll be right back. All righty, what a day, what a day, um, what a glorious day. This is the day the Lord has made. We are rejoicing. We are glad in it. You know, there's probably somebody you're going to encounter today. In fact, I feel fairly confident. There's someone you're going to encounter today that does not know how great God is. And they do not know how good God is. They don't even know that God loves them, that God is for them, that God's pursuing them, that God's interested in them, that God sees them, that God has accounted for them, that God wants to bless them. So let's be agents of that message today. Let's broadcast the presence, the goodness, the greatness, the glory, the blessing of God to others. Let's be lights of that news. Have a great weekend. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.